in verse 11, the parable of the minas, verses 11 through 27. And when you get there, it'd be a good thing if you stand as I read the passage for us. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants and delivered to them 10 minas. And he said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that they might know how much every man had gained by trading. And so the first came, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little have authority over ten cities. And a second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect where you do not deposit and reap what you do not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting where I did not deposit and reaping where I did not sow. Why did you not put the money in the bank? That at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And it was that those who stood by, he said, take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you, that to everyone who has it will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring those here, my enemies, bring here those enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. May God bless his word. You may be seated. So this parable was to instruct the people on the preconceived ideas on when God would come and fulfill his word and establish the kingdom. And so, as we have heard many times and are aware of, no doubt, uh, the present-day eschatology, which is the study of last things, and, and their idea of the coming Messiah, that he would establish his kingdom, defeat their enemies, and establish peace, and there would be prosperity in Israel, as Israel would, would again become the head and not the tail, and they would become the leaders of the world. And so this parable was there to sort of uh, address this presumptive attitude and dogmatism uh, that they had slipped into and something that we in our day and age are not free from. It's so easy for us to slip into these preconceived ideas on when and how things are going to happen. Uh, it's, it's something that's very present in the hour in which we live. Um, God's timing and our understanding of end times often do not coincide. And I think this parable is to sort of give us pause, 
to, to, as it were, to maybe to think we don't really understand as much as we think we do, nor do we maybe not understand God's timing in all things. The point is there's only so much you can control in your life. There's only so much I can control in my life. The main objective, as we'll see through this passage, is for us to remain faithful to what God has called us to do. Now, those of you who are familiar with the scriptures, you, as we begin to read this, you can think, well, this is sort of the repeat from the one in Matthew 25, you know, where the parable of the um, talents are given out here. But there's similarity, but there's also differences. In the parable uh, of the talents, uh, Matthew 25, um, 14 through 30, if you're taking notes, uh, the difference is in the amounts received. Uh, in Matthew 25, each person received different amounts. Here, as we've read, uh, each person received the same amount. Uh, there, uh, they had different rewards, and here, uh, they all have the same, uh, where there they had the same reward. Here we have different rewards. So you get, you kind of get the idea that uh, as you come through this, that the more effort you put into it, the more blessed you're going to be uh, on the other side. And so uh, we'll get to that here. But notice here, um, they're coming near Jerusalem. So remember, this is the journey. We've been going on this journey for two or three weeks now, right? They have come from the Sea of Galilee, and as they have made their way across the Jordan River uh, to the east side of the Jordan, coming up the King's Highway, they've gained people along the way. People are caravanning. They're joining it. That's just how they would go to the feast. It was safer that way. They could eat together. They could fellowship together. It was an 80-mile trek for those who actually were coming from the Galilee, so it took a lot of time and effort to make it to Jerusalem. But now they've come through, back over the river, come through Jericho. They're now coming near Jerusalem, and the excitement is, is off the charts. They're, there's an electric, electricity in the air. There's an anticipation in the air. These people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Many of the common people believe that. That was not true with the establishment. They're going to look at him for a week. They're going to examine him. And in a week, he'll be hanging on the cross. So it's not going to go well. This is to prepare them. Um, anybody want to take a shot at uh, who the nobleman is here? He's a very noble man. The nobleman is Christ himself. And the establishment did not consider Jesus very noble. But the, many of the common people did. He is going to receive his kingdom in his first coming here, as we see, was what? To receive his kingdom, to establish his kingdom, and to call his servants. In this first coming, this is what Christ has done. He has established his kingdom. It was spiritually speaking. None of us were fit, are fit for the kingdom of heaven in our fallen natures. We're lost. We're out of touch with God. We're... we're <laughs> As he said to the Pharisees, <clears throat> you are of your father the devil. We're born altogether into sin. We're not ready. We can't go to heaven. We can't enter the kingdom of heaven in our present state. As he said to Nicodemus, a spiritual man, a person who loved the law, a teacher of the law, even to him he said, you must be born again. What? What do you mean? 
Yes, your spirit is dead. Your spirit needs to be made alive. You need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot understand the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God. So Jesus' first ministry was to come and establish the spiritual truths and the understanding of the nature and character of God and what was required to be a citizen. He was rejected, as we have read here. The citizens hated him. Even as the flesh is contrary to the spirit, there's a war there. And he accomplished that. He called his servants, but he didn't just call you and me. He didn't just arbitrarily say, you know, you, you, you. He called us with purpose. As we've read here, he called us and he gave us opportunity. He empowered his servants. He gave us not only uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the authority to do business, but the wherewithal. Notice here in our story, he gave them uh, the minas. One thing you and I will never lack in life is the opportunity. God will present opportunity uh, to us time and time again. Now, notice here that this, when I speak of opportunity and to better ourselves, in this application here, it's not us personally. We're to invest our time and effort in the gain and the glory of another, this nobleman that we serve. And that's important. But along with that, we get blessed. He loves us so much, he shares with us. He wants us to increase ourselves. You know, one of the things I've learned over the years is, is I don't pray for funding. I don't pray for money. I pray for opportunity. I pray for God's favor. Because when I pray for opportunity and I pray for favor, I always know that that's going to involve me doing something. I can't just take the passive mode of, oh, God, just send money. Because that, I mean, then I'm just looking, in the, looking towards the mailbox, right? But when I pray for favor and I pray for opportunity, that means I'm going to be cooperating with God in his plans and his purpose. Opportunity is an important thing. We have to take advantage. I don't know if you've ever heard the story or opportunities bald spot uh, some of you have uh, in, in the past there was a well known bronze statue um, um, uh, by the Greek sculptor named Lysippius and uh, this famous statue was an, uh, had an epigram, epigram uh, and, uh, attached to the statue the epigram was a series of questions and answers and uh, after inquiring about the author and its origin, here's what you would read. The quest, first question was, who are you? Time, kairos in the Greek. Uh, time, who subdues all things. Why do you stand on tiptoe? I'm ever running. And why do you have a pair of wings on your feet? I fly with the wind. Why do you hold a razor in your right hand? As a sign to men that I am sharper than any two-edged sword. Why does your hair hang over your face? Well, for him who meets me to take me by the forelock. And why in heaven's name is the back of your head bald? Because none in whom I've once raced by on my winged feet 
will now, though he may wish, can take hold of me from behind. And so this gave the rise to the expression opportunity is bald from behind. See, once you have an opportunity, if you don't take advantage of it, it is gone. You will never have a chance to have it back. And if you are in business, you have already learned this lesson probably a time or two. And the point is here, we must learn to respond to the opportunities that God presents to us. Not only for personal gain, but for the gain of the one that we serve, the nobleman. Take advantage of the opportunity we're given to share the gospel. It's placed in our court to share the good news. The gift that we've been given, others can receive as well. The Bible tells us, and this will confirm that it's not only just for the Lord, but it is for us because you and I are living epistles, are we not? Is that not what the scripture says about you and I? Second Corinthians 3, I think you can pull that up. Second Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are the epistle of Christ. Ministered by us, not written with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You must remember and be reminded that God is writing a book through your life. And people are reading that book. See, the nobleman left these servants with all the wherewithal to do business until we turn. And that's what we're to do as well. We're to do business. You can get caught up in studying eschatology. You can, you can have it all figured out. You know, you're all excited. A lot of prophecy buffs are really uptight and excited with what's going on in the Middle East right now. But what if this just fizzles out and comes to nothing? You see... Eschatology, the study of last things, prophecy, it's important. I, they, some say there's 75% of the Bible's prophetic in nature. And that's true. A lot of it's been fulfilled. And there are a number of things uh, that have been fulfilled. We all have a, a certain understanding if you've been in the Word for any amount of time. If you've spent any time studying prophecy, uh, you, you have within your mind, let's just say that you're... Um, dispensationalist position uh, with your theology and end times. Uh, so the next thing on the schedule in our minds would be the rapture of the church followed by the seven-year tri- great tribulation, which the last half would be considered the great tribulation. So a seven-year tribulation period followed by the return of Christ, the physical return of Christ on a white horse with the armies of heaven setting his feet down on the Mount of Olives, splitting that bringing the nations there in the valley of Jehoshaphat, having the judgment of the nations, the separation between the sheep and the goats, and then the establishment of his kingdom. And then it's known, believed, that the church will rule and reign with him. We'll be given responsibilities as administrators, as we've read here, maybe over the cities. We're going to help Jesus rule and reign. The 12 apostles will sit on thrones judging the 12 Nations, we, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. So we, we have that thing. And then, you know, that goes on for a thousand years and Satan's chained up for that thousand years. Wish he'd never come out, but then at the end of the thousand years, 
He's let out for a little bit. He deceives the nations and back into to attack the Lord. And they come to head towards Jerusalem to try to attack the Lord. And one word from the Savior's mouth, they're vanquished. Satan is taken to the lake of fire along with all the other filthy demons and angels and cast into the lake of fire. And then we have, at the end of that time, the great white throne judgment. Everybody that was born from Adam all the way through the millennial reign of Christ that had not received salvation. They rejected the presence of God. They, didn't ever, they never came to know or understand. They were never born of the Spirit. They're brought before God and they're judged by their works and they're sentenced accordingly. They didn't want God in their life, so God's accommodating them. Then at the end of that judgment, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And wherever Jesus goes, his bride goes with him. That's a general understanding of what's yet to come. Now you can, there are those who don't see it that way, and that's fine. See, those are not the important, those things are not predicated upon, if you believe that and understand and accept that, you'll be saved. Your prophetic view will not affect your eternal destiny. What will affect your eternal destiny is your knowledge of God. There are people who don't understand grace. They don't understand. They think in their own goodness they can and should be allowed to come into heaven. I'm a good person. The problem with that is that we don't really know how to define good. Now, we had this discussion at length yesterday in our men's Bible study, and it was quite interesting. But that's the truth. We really don't understand. There's only, as Jesus said, there's only one good, and that is God. We're not good. We don't know what good is. Our responsibility is not to figure it all out. Our responsibility is to occupy till he comes. Do our job. We are called to image the Lord. When people read your book and see your life, they're to see at least a little bit of what Jesus Christ is like. Remember Jesus in his last meal with the disciples that they're in the upper room and Jesus has given them a lot of information and Philip's like well look I can just see this you know just show us the father and it'll be that's all we need just that's all we need and Jesus like are you kidding me seriously I don't know he that's how we would interpret it right if you've seen me, Peter, you've seen the Father. Jesus was the, in is the ex, express image of God. Yeah. Hebrews 1. You want to know what God is like? You don't know, want to know what the Father is like? Jesus imaged him, expressed him in his earthly ministry perfectly. I do always those things that please the Father. As I hear, I do. That's what we're about. Learning you can't mimic someone if you don't know them. And so it comes down to us knowing God and learning his nature and his character. And it isn't about increasing our wealth. We're here to increase and make gain for the, our nobleman, the one that we serve. 
You know, John the Baptist, he figured this out pretty quick. In John 3, Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 25, this is what we read concerning John and understanding this principle of dying to self, if you will. There arose a dispute among some of John's disciples about the Jews and purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that is the way of a disciple of Christ. It isn't about me. It isn't about you. It isn't about us, right? Not to us. Not to us. Being, bring, bring, uh, give glory, but to him. Psalm 115. He must increase, and I must decrease. He's left us the resources we need to do the business we're to do. We all have the Holy Spirit. Those of us who've been born again, We've been gifted, whether we have taken the time to discover what those gifts are, we still have them. They're resident within us. Some of them need to be awakened in some of you. You don't really know what the gifts of the Spirit are, or you don't even, maybe you don't even know the ones you have. But those are the, that's what you're supposed to be using to build up the body of Christ and to reach the world. And so, by the way, we can help you with that if you need some help discovering that. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his spirit, uh, gifts of the spirit. We belong to the body of Christ. We're part of his family, and we are accountable to one another. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We are connected. And this is one of the things that's going on in the church today that's very disturbing. With this COVID thing, Sort of just blew the lid off the ugliness within the church. This independency. Oh, I'll just stay home and stay in my jammies. I'll just watch it from home. Oh, you can do that. You, there's no, there's no, the Bible studies are without number. The great teaching that's available to the Western culture from the Bible is incredible. But that's all it is. Where's the interaction? Where's the relationships being developed with? You can't develop relationships in what you hang around people. You got to get to know people. You got to develop friendships. We're brothers and sisters. We're part of the family. Well, I don't really like my brothers and sisters too much. Well, you need to get over that. <laughs> it's called love, <laughs> right? Oh, be warm, be filled. God bless you. Uh-huh. Doesn't work that way, does it? You need to have a relationship that if you get in trouble and you're stuck in the mud and you need pulled out, you can call someone and they'll come and help you. If you stay home and you isolate yourself, which is the enemy's tactic, by the way, because you can hide behind the screen and nobody knows what's going on in your life, no accountability, how are you going to have a relationship that you could feel comfortable calling someone to help you in your time of need? 
We need each other. We're social creatures. So God has pre left us glorious opportunities to serve him. And we have a job to do, and we need to do that job. We need to complete it before we leave this earth. Notice Paul's, in his letters, he knew when the end was coming. He knew that he was a, uh, about to have his head taken couldn't crucify a Roman citizen, but you could take their head off. And so as he's in prison, he realizes in 2 Timothy, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm not getting out of here alive. There is laid up for me. I finished my course. I've run my race. There will be within you an, a, a confirmation that you have done what you are supposed to do. Until you get that, you better burn out instead of rust out, right? Go for it. Trust him. Don't expect to be loved by everyone if you live that kind of life. It says in verse 14, the nobleman was hated. When you live a sanctified, spirit-filled life, don't think it's going to be a bed of roses. You're going to be challenged. There will be people that hate you because of you holier than thou. You holy Joe. I mean, I've heard worse than that, trust me. I thank God for the privilege I've had to work in construction for a number of years. And for most of you understand that that's not, they're not the most well-mannered bunch of people. They're kind of rough around the edges and even worse than that. So I've had a lot of things done to me uh, out of jest and out of joke. And, and I can take some of it. But the point is here, we have to learn to accept rejection. You may be rejected. They, you notice they sent a delegation and they made a declaration here. This guy will not reign over us. You know, Jesus is really trying to prepare these people. They believe. They, here's our guy. Here's the king. Remember in Gospel of John, they were going to come and take him by force and make him king. And, you know, he kind of ended that real quick. Drink, drink my blood, eat my body. That sort of shut that down. Huh? cannibalism no wait that's spiritual you know this is this is people and so Jesus is really uh, trying to prepare them he's not going to be accepted by the establishment it's going to go the other way they did not want Jesus to reign over them now he goes and he returns now when does Jesus actually receive the kingdom? Something happens in heaven. There's a scroll that's taken from the fellow that's on the right hand. Comes and takes a scroll out of his right hand that sits upon the throne. There's a lamb that had been slain. Looks like some documentation. Look up Daniel seven thirteen. Son of man becomes beside the one who's sitting on the throne, the Ancient of Days, and he receives a kingdom that's going to last for how long? Like forever. He's going to return. But when he returns, he's going to call his servants and they're going to give an account. And I'm going to tell you, this is probably, this should make each and every one of us shudder. And I do, personally. When I think about my accountability, see, I'm going to get judged a lot harsher than you. 
unless you're a Bible teacher, then you're going to get the same kind of judgment. We're going to receive a harsher judgment because of the position of influence that we have over God's people, and rightly so. But either way, we're going to present our earnings, our works, as it were, before the king, the nobleman, and we're going to be judged. Now, as we've read here, um, each of them received the same. So we all have the same responsibility with the gospel and to image God. That's what we're going to be judged for. What did we do with what we were given? This is the judgment here. Notice the first two guys did pretty good. You get the idea that, that the reward's gonna, again, going to be proportional uh, to the amount of effort that's put forth. And uh, you put more effort in, you, the more work you get done, the more the reward. But the third guy, he had the same amount given to him, same responsibilities. And he, here's the thing, he had, he had issues, right? It says that he uh, put his minas in a handkerchief. Uh, in, in those days, a uh, piece of cloth, this, the handkerchief that they used was used for wiping off sweat. Remember, uh, they took Paul's handkerchief and they put it on people and they got healed. <laughs> is that, 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 this is what we're talking about, that kind of cloth. Well, this servant took his money that had been given to him before the, the old woman left the first time and he just hid them. And so the idea that you get from that is he wasn't working too hard because he didn't need that handkerchief to wipe off any of his sweat, right? <laughs> he was lazy, in, in short, in a few words. And in reality, he was controlled by his fears. He had no love for his master. And I believe that a lot of this fear came about because he misjudged the character of the nobleman. He saw him as austere, severe, strict, hard. He knew that he was a great businessman. I mean, I don't know how he pulls it off, but he obtains and he gains without really getting too involved. How does he do that? No sowing, and yet he reaps? What? So he had questions about it. He didn't really understand his master. How many people have, that are saved have a misunderstanding of the nature and character of God? How many Christians fail to grasp the grace of God? How many Christians are living a performance-based relationship with God? If I do good, well, then I, God's going to bless me. Well, I said some things I shouldn't have said. I did some things I shouldn't have done. Well, you know, well, there's so, so much God can't bless me. That's relating to God on the basis of works. That's not how we are to relate to God. You can't do anything or be anything apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all about relationship and relying upon him. This is what Jesus talked about when he says, abide in me. That means to remain in a continual state of action and interaction with him. Your life should be filled with prayer, thoughtfulness. Hey, Lord, help me through this. Moment by moment as you go out throughout your day, you're calling upon the Lord, you're thinking upon the Lord. It just becomes part and parcel of who you are. But what do we have in our Western culture and our world today? We've compartmentalized God. Well, I do that on Sunday. 
I've given you your part, God. One day, one hour, that's enough. You wonder why we don't enjoy the blessings of God, the joy of God, or experience the deep love of God and enjoy our relationship with Him. It's because we're not putting enough effort into it. The more effort you put into it, the greater return and the greater blessing you'll experience. I think these other two guys that did really well, just be assured that they had fears, they had attitudes, they had issues that they had to work through, but they didn't let that stop them. They just worked through it. Fear can lead to failure. You don't want to be a failure when it comes to this. It's so important that you and I remain faithful to God. What do you think of when you think of the word failure? Most people think, well, I'm just not good enough. That's why I failed. Yeah, I'll just throw in the towel. Simple definition of failure is this. It's an action that proved unsuccessful. You just tried something that didn't work. That's all it means. And you think about history. We're all familiar with Thomas Edison, right? We don't know really how many times he failed, but we get the idea that he failed a lot, like thousands of times before he was able to come up with the light bulb, right? And this is what he says. I have not failed... I just found 10,000 ways that don't work. (laughs) I'm not discouraged because every wrong attempt discarded is another step forward. So you just realize, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. See, we have to adopt this attitude in order to overcome our fear of failure. You've got to trust that the Lord's going to impart the faith and the ability... If God calls you to do something, he's going to give you the empowerment and the ability to do it. That would be cruel otherwise. I always use this illustration, but because it sticks in my brain, I guess, Jesus is being attacked and questioned always by the, the establishment, right? And they plant a guy in the synagogue right by the door, and he's got a withered hand. You see, the Pharisees knew the nature of Jesus maybe even better than his own disciples at this point. They know that when Jesus walked through that door, he's going to see that guy. And it's on the Sabbath, and he's going to heal them. And he probably would have healed them anyway, but I'm sure it was another opportunity for him to provoke them and show them within their hearts their hatred. That's really what was manifesting here. And so they plant this guy there and just sure enough, Jesus walks through the door and he calls this guy to step forward. He's got a withered hand. Now, it's one thing to be crippled. You know, most people that have a a malady like that, they don't want to be a spotlight. I mean, that's, way to go, Jesus. Now you're embarrassing this guy. You're making him a spectacle. How loving is that? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath, to do good, or to do evil on the Sabbath? That's the question to the people who set it up. Stretch forth your hand. Not only are you embarrassing him, Jesus, 
by bringing him out there and making a spec. Now you're asking him to do something he can't do. What happened? As soon as Jesus gave the command, the authority and the power to move that crippled hand was there. And when he stretched forth his hand, he was healed. When God calls you, he's going to empower you. He doesn't call you to embarrass you. He doesn't call you to make you a spectacle. None of that. He's got a plan and a purpose. You are a book. You are a letter being read and known by all men. He wants to use you. He wants to demonstrate his power and his grace. So Philippians 1.6 would apply to you and me as well. Being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you, in me, will complete it until the day of Christ. Yes, you may have failed, you may have stumbled, you may have given all, you can come up with all kinds of excuses why you shouldn't be doing whatever you know God wants you to do. Don't do that. Henry Ford said, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. <laughs> I mean, these guys were successful men. We, would we not consider them successful? And they failed, and they failed, and they failed. But they, so what is true failure then? True failure is when you give it up. You just throw in the towel, and you cash it in. I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. There are some famous people that have been very successful in their lives. At least that's probably why they're famous. And here's some quotes from them. And I don't know some of them, but it sounds pretty good, so I'm going to read them to you. <laughs> Failure is an event, never a person. William Brown. You always pass failure on your way to success. Mickey Rooney. Never confuse a single defeat with a final defeat. Scott Fitzgerald. You can't have any successes until you accept failures. George Cukor. Just because you failed once or twice or a hundred times doesn't mean you're a failure. You only fail if you stop trying. So this week, you're not going to stop trying, are you? You're going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Sometimes you're dog tired and you've, it just hasn't worked at this point and you're just weary of trying. Well, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Just keep trying. Keep moving. Never give up. You know what's going to happen if you never give up? At some point, you're going to succeed. It's going to happen. It's going to work. I think that's, I think sometimes what inhibits you and me from doing what we need to do is that fear of failure. And sometimes we worry about what people think. I'm just going to list a few things that might be present in you, why you aren't doing what you know you probably should be doing or why you're not stepping in, out in faith, why you're not exercising your spiritual gifts, why the power of the Holy Spirit is not really working through your life. You just take this to the heart of it. If it applies, fine. If not, no big deal. You worry about maybe what other people think. Your ability to pursue the future you desire. If I do this, then I won't be able to do something else. 
You worry that people will lose interest in you. Maybe you're worried about how intelligent you are or how capable you are and how far away of what you want to do or you should do and have the ability to make that happen. You just you worry about those things. Maybe you worry about disappointing people. And if you did that, then they would have a bad opinion of you. You know, and in the end, what it matters is what God thinks. And you re- that's, that's really a, a big thing. That's a big hurdle to overcome for a lot of people. In reality, nobody's going to be standing beside you and me when we come before the judgment seat of Christ. When we stand before the Bema seat and he judges our works, because that's all we're going to take to heaven, we're not going there empty-handed. Something's coming with us. Whatever's been forged in our hearts and our character through suffering, the works that we've done, that's what's going to come with us. That's what Revelation says. Their works do follow them. And our works will be judged as we stand before the beam of seat of Christ. That which is done out of love and a motivation of love for the glory of God, it will be considered gold, silver, and precious stones. That which is done in the flesh, human ability, relying upon human nature and all that will be considered wood, hay, and stubble. When the fiery eyes of the Savior looks at those things that are gold, silver, and precious stones, it's going to last forever, and that was what you and I will be rewarded for. If it's wood, hay, and stubble, toast. When the all-seeing, fiery eyes of the Savior looks upon that, it will burn instantaneously. I don't know about you, but I don't want to appear before the Lord empty-handed. And I know every one of us that love the Lord want to hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, God loves us, and he's looking for those whose heart is perfect towards him so that he can show himself powerfully through them. That's what the letter that's being written is all about. You know, as, we, as this thing ends, it's, it's pretty intense, you know. This guy that gave up was judged by his own standards. You know, look, the nobleman says, you could have at least done the minimum. Put the money, put it in the bank. And as a result of doing nothing, he lost what had been given to him. Luke twelve forty eight. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with a few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And so we understand that third guy lost what he did have and what he did have was taken and given to the other person who was faithful. You know, you want to get something done, you know who to ask? You ask the busiest people around you. (laughs) I know, I always tell my wife, I always get more done when I'm busy. You know, it, it makes sense if you think about it. 
It didn't make much sense, I guess. <laughs> and then the sobering thing is nobody's going to escape the judgment of God. Nobody's going nobody to get away with anything. We like to think that it happens in our culture, and it does. We think about the crimes that are being committed presently in D.C. I mean, these guys are thieves. They're stealing constantly from the citizenry, making laws, hand-greasing continuously, enriching themselves. And we commoners just sit back in frustration like, how does this stop? I don't know about you, but I don't like being ripped off. I don't enjoy that at all. I wish I could fix it, but that seems to be out of our hands. But it is not out of the hand of God. And those who reject him will suffer severely. Bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them. You see, there's no room for rebellion in the kingdom of God. You know what happens to rebels. They get booted. And it's just a matter of time before the rebel that we refer to as Satan, he'll be rounded up and arrested and put where he belongs and he'll get what's coming to him. Nobody escapes. We'd like it to happen in our time. We'd like things, justice to be performed sooner than it does happen or seem to happen. But rest assured, nobody escapes. And the thing about God's judgment, whether it's giving us rewards or punishing the wicked and the rebellious, it's always fair. God is just. God never overreaches. He never oversteps. And what we receive on the other side will be perfect. And it will be in accordance to what we have done. Isn't that amazing? So yet, so this is self-examination. And you can take this all week. And you got all week to think about this. What do I want? on the other side I have no idea what that it means necessarily but generally speaking I really want everything that God has planned for me the Bible tells us that his plans everything that goes on everything that will happen has been planned from the foundations before the foundation of the earth was ever laid God thought about you do you believe that? That God thought about you? I'll take that a step further. God's thoughts towards you individually and each one of us, and this is a mind blower, are more than the thoughts of the grains of the sands on the seashore. Now, if you really get bored this week and you don't have anything to do, take a tablespoon. Well, no, let's just make it easy. Let's take a teaspoon. Well, let's just make it even easier. Take a, take a quarter Teaspoon, teaspoon, and take, take some sand and put it on the countertop and start counting those grains of sand. You don't have that much time on your hands, I get it. He's saying, my thoughts towards you are greater than all the grains of sand on all the seashores. God's thoughts of good, not evil, to give you an expected end and a blessing are more, they're incalculable. That's how much God thinks about you. Isn't that amazing? That's the kind of God we serve. Understand the nature and character of God and it'll change your life. Amen. Shall we stand?
We're going to close in a song. And I hope you've been encouraged. I hope your faith is strengthened. I hope you're reminded how much God really, really loves you and really cares about what's going on in your life. I hope you're encouraged. And I hope you're challenged. And I hope you're stirred to do what God's calling you to do. If you are struggling with that, and you need some help, that's what we're here for as leaders. I'll be glad to take time through the week to spend any amount of time to help you find your way in what the Lord wants you to do. Shall we pray? Father, again, I just ask for your grace to be poured out upon each one of us. I ask, Lord, that you would just wash us clean if there's any condemnation, any feelings of insecurity that would cause any one of us to draw back from what you have. I pray you would remove that in Jesus' name and set your people free. Free us up, Lord, to serve you with all the joy and all the strength and all the vigor that we have. Bless my brothers and sisters this day. Bless their week. Go before them. I pray for your protection upon them as they go out, as they come in, wherever they go, may they be filled with your joy, your love, and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.